And it is another edition of Jamal About Sports coming to you on a Tuesday, April 24th, 2018. Kicking off the show, Synchronicity 2 by the police off of the uh, seminal Synchronicity album. As always, I am your host, Jamal Hayden. We've got a big show to get to today. We've got Major League Baseball. Specifically, my New York Metropolitans, although they haven't played in a while. But uh, a move that was made last week that uh, I think will have long-term repercussions both on and off the field. We'll talk a little bit about the NFL as we finally get closer. Two days away now and counting to the NFL draft. But we start with the NBA playoffs. And I have to be honest. I was not that uh, excited about the playoffs to start. Um, you know, talked about the NBA a bunch on previous shows. Um, you know, thought that uh, there wouldn't be too many interesting series, and um, that has not proven to be the case. Uh, actually, we've got some very good series. Um, tonight's games, for instance, uh, the first is Milwaukee Boston. That series is tied at two. Um, Miami, Philly, Philly's up three one there. Talked about Philadelphia. Look, they're they're just better than the Heat. I mean, they're just a more talented team. Um, and there are some uh, are in the camp that in the NBA playoffs, experience matters more than talent. Uh, and then there are those like myself who think that that's uh, hogwash, frankly. Um, and uh, I think that is proving itself in that series between Philly and Miami. And listen, this Miami team, A, is not that good. B, they don't have a ton of experience anyway. This is not the, obviously, you know, the big three heat, right? None of the, you know, Dwayne Wade is back, got traded there this year, or I guess what, got released by Cleveland, and then whatever. He was a pickup, you know, later in the year after Cleveland wanted nothing to do with him. And while he had a great game, the game they won, you know, he also has not played particularly well in, in, in the other games. Although I think he did have a, a decent game in the, in the last game that they lost. Um, but, you know, Dwayne Wade is, is, is a compromised version of himself. I mean, he's, you know, look, these great veteran players can still every now and then sort of recapture past form, they can't do it over a seven-game series. They just can't. Or they can't do it for extended minutes in a playoff series because the competition's too good. See, that's the thing. And look, I understand the NBA. There's a lot of quote-unquote mediocre teams. Look, the Sixers won what, 16 games to close out the year? I mean, they won 50 games. It's a talented team. And they did a lot of that without Embiid. Then they got Embiid back. Simmons is a marvel. I mean, he is a marvel. Ben Simmons, the point guard, is a marvel. He's damn near seven feet tall. You know, he goes for close to a triple-double every game. And he can't shoot yet. And he's still, what, 22? (laughs) You guys want to talk about a unicorn. I understand Kevin Durant gave uh, Porzingis that nickname a couple years ago. Ben Simmons is the unicorn. Nobody does what Ben Simmons does at that size. The only guy somewhat close is Anton Tacupo, who, by the way, had to play the game against the Celtics the other night on Sunday with a tip-in with about four seconds left. Out of nowhere with the left hand, 
off the miss by I think it was Bledsoe on a missed layup. Um, I mean, you know, because he's also six eleven and his wingspan is is through the roof. And we talked very early in the year when I was still kind of buying the Knicks Kool Aid and I was on the Porzingis bandwagon about how the NBA was changing with these really tall guys that play like guards in Simmons and Antetokounmpo and Porzingis. And that still well may, well may be the case. But Simmons is, you know, again, I, the only other guy in, and, and, and Antetokounmpo, same thing, he can't really shoot yet either. He's okay from the foul line. I think he's in the 70%, 75 76% foul shooter. Can't really make threes yet and is, is a reluctant jump shooter which gets him into trouble sometimes because teams sag off of him and it stagnates the offense. But, I mean, the guy, <laughs> when he's going to the basket and he's determined, forget it. And his defense is phenomenal because he's got the crazy wingspan. Um, it's interesting. It's an interesting time. So... You know, from the new guard to the old guard, the, the game that I found fascinating on Sunday was San Antonio against Golden State. Now, listen, we talked about it, I think, on last week's show, maybe the week before that. You know, San Antonio, they just don't have the horses, right? They're missing their best player all year in Kawhi Leonard, right? Now, Popovich isn't coaching the team because sadly his wife just passed away after uh, a struggle with a long illness. Um, you know, and they've they've gotten old. Now, no one in the league does a better job than the Spurs as far as player development and taking young guys and making them into at least quality NBA players. Not necessarily stars, but quality players, like a Patty Mills, right? But they don't really have the heir apparent stud point guard that Tony Parker used to be and is no longer. But again, like these old, these old guys that are great, and Tony Parker was a great player. He's not anymore, but he was, right? They can, every now and then, revert back to their old great form, and it happened in that game. And what that game on Sunday was, that game told you everything you need to know about who the Spurs are as players and as an organization in general. And that was, listen, we know... We're not any good. We know Golden State's much better than we are, but it's 3-0, and we know we're not winning this series. But guess what? They're not closing this out on our home floor. We're not doing that to our fans. We've got too much pride as players and as an organization overall, and we're not going out like that. And guess what? Nobody would have begrudged them had they gone down, had they gotten swept. The whole world knows Golden State's better than the Spurs are. And you could have said, look, these guys have had a hell of a run, and they have. 20 years. This was the first time in 20 years they haven't won 50 games. They're in the conference finals every time you turn around. They're in the finals you know, every other year, seemingly, until this recent run by Golden State. They won four finals with Pop there. I mean, if any team could take a mulligan and you'd give a pass to for getting swept in the first round of the playoffs, it would be the Spurs. And they said, no, 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 no. Guess what? We're not going to take it. Thank you, but no. We appreciate the offer. We will politely decline, and we will fight like hell to defend our home court and not get swept on our home court. 
They are, as I've said many, many times, the exact opposite in a good way of what the Knicks are. They are the model franchise in the NBA and maybe in all of sports. And I understand there are some out there that don't like Popovich because he gets surly with the media. I understand that. And there are times when, when, to be fair, it's not called for. And you would think somebody who uh, otherwise is extremely articulate and tuned in to what's happening in this country outside of sports would get it. You know, look, he's got a blind spot when it comes to that stuff. And it's not a great look for him. I'll be the first to admit it, but I'm a big Popovich fan. But, I mean, aside from that, I mean, look, you had Ginobili had, what, 10 points in the fourth quarter, making an array of, you know, underhanded scoop shots around the basket, nailing a three with the shot clock running down. Tony Parker showed up and gave him, you know, 12 points in, in only 14 minutes or something like that. I mean... That's who the, that's the DNA of the Spurs. And look, they play tonight and they're probably going to lose and that's fine. Again, they just don't have the horses. But I guarantee you, every other team in the league, every one of them, given the same circumstances, Loses that game on Sunday and gets swept and goes out for, no, for nothing and goes and starts their summer vacation early. And again, if any team you could set, you would say to yourself, ah, can you blame them? It would be this Spurs team, and that's and that's why, by the way, of course, they didn't, and that's what makes them great. I was extremely impressed by that effort on Sunday. It was a joy to watch. Now, the polar opposite of the Spurs, other than the Knicks, as far as playoff teams are concerned, would be the Wizards, who you never know what you're getting from them. So they got down 2-0 to Toronto. We talked about how Toronto said Game 1, we're going to treat it like Game 7 because they had had such a bad time of it in previous Game 1s and previous series. Well, that's great. They forgot about Games 3 and 4. Because Toronto is now tied 2-2. I mean, that series should be the... You can't trust either of these teams as far as you could throw them series. Because just when I wanted to say, you know what? Eh, maybe Toronto's... Maybe this. Maybe it's different this year. Look, Toronto's won a bunch of games. They win 50 games a lot, 48 games. They've been a good team. They made the playoffs a bunch. They never do anything in the playoffs. And particularly that backcourt of Lowry and DeRozan. It looked like things were different, and they still might be. But, I mean, boy, did they revert to form the other night. I mean, they had a big lead. They let it squander, or they squandered it, I should say. And then DeRozan, you know, starts trying to do hero ball, taking one terrible shot after the next. And then, you know what? John Wall finally hit a couple of jump shots and had a rousing dunk over... uh, 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 the center for Toronto, Valanciunas. You know, after Bradley Beal, they're, they, I mean, th- these teams are in a lot of ways mirror images of each other, right? You've got the great, supposed great backcourt in Washington with Bradley Beal, the shooting guard, and Wall, the point guard. And then Kyle Lowry and DeRozan for Toronto. You've got centers that are roughly 
similar in size and skill level and, and skill set in Gortat for Washington and Valanchunas for Toronto. Right Now, the big edge Toronto supposedly has is their bench. But as I've said before, the bench is great in an 82-game series, series season. It, that doesn't play well in the playoffs in the NBA. It really doesn't. Because guess what? You're not playing a lot of back-to-backs. You get time off. And so you can put, I mean, look, Christ, LeBron played 46 minutes the other night. Now, I understand he's superhuman, but... My point is, is guys are, look, the intensity level goes way up, and guys are willing to grind it out and give you more minutes if needed in the playoffs. So I'm not saying it's a bad thing to have a good bench. I, it's just not as valuable an asset in a playoff series, in a short playoff series, and again, in which you're not playing back-to-back games as it is over the course of a long slog of an 82-game season. That's all. And so that was all, you know, what Toronto's biggest strength was two things their backcourt and their bench. Well, the backcourt has been lousy the last couple of games. And the bench, again, is somewhat negated because it's the playoffs and it's not the regular season. So it'll be interesting to see how that series plays out. I mean, but I, again, I, I can't trust either of these teams as far as I could throw them. You know, one one day Otto Porter Jr. will look great for Washington, and then the next he'll he'll be two for six, and you won't even know he's on the floor. You know, Wall puts up huge numbers, but more often than not, makes terrible decisions late in the close games in the fourth quarter. Now I, I get it; he played great the other day. He did this last year too, by the way, against the Celtics. Remember that? I think it was a game six, and I think he hit a big shot. And they won a game late, and he went and stood up on the uh, the scorers table. You know, like they just won the championship. See, that's the problem with John Wall. John Wall is very much like Carmelo, right? He thinks he wants to win, and of course he wants one. Everybody wants one. But will he do what is necessary, what is required to win? Because he got embarrassed on defense last year by Isaiah Thomas. That should never happen. John Walls is as quick as Isaiah Thomas is and he's taller and he's got long arms. And he should have been on him like glue every damn game last year in that series. But guess what? John Wall plays defense when he decides he wants to play defense. Other than that, he's, that's not really his thing. And again, talented beyond belief. Ton of talent. Still not a great ju- jump shooter. And that's the other thing. Still not really a very consistent jump shooter. Been in the league how many years now? Seven years? I mean, he's got as quick a first step as anybody. Can get to the rim, can finish with the best of them. Gifted passer? Sure. Why are you not at least a a 38 to 40% shooter from three now? Because they don't work on it. So I don't want to hear about, oh, my drive to win, my passion to win. you know, you could it's slip service. Slip service. As you can tell, I'm not a big John Wall guy. Kills the Knicks, but that's but that doesn't exactly mean much these days, does it? The other series that was super impressive or interesting was Portland New Orleans. You know, Portland getting swept by New Orleans. And you know, a lot of people I was a three six. Look, there was one game separated, I think two games total separated like the ninth seed and the three seed in the West. Um, and, you know, that was the same thing. 
you know, Portland, as we've said all year, they go as their backcourt goes. Lillard and uh, McCollum. And you know what? Look, McCollum played great in game four. And I'll give Portland credit. They didn't lay down. They tried hard. They just got beat by a better team. But Lillard did not have a particularly good series. Got badly outplayed by Drew Holiday, who a lot of people don't know. Who I think this is his third team, maybe. I think he started his career out with Sixers. He may have been on the Pacers at one point. Um, you know, he's battled injuries recently, and he also had a horrible thing with his wife last year, or she had a, a, a life-threatening illness. She turned out she was okay. You know, then they had the experiment with the two big men with Anthony Davis and Cousins, and they were putting up big numbers, but they really weren't winning a lot. And Cousins got hurt. Everybody wrote him off. Then they made the trade for Nikola Mirotic from the Bulls. The guy got punched in the face by his own teammate, Bobby Portis, in, pre- in preseason and was out for a bunch, but who's a very good player, and he's fitting great over there. Big man who can hit the three, can mix it up down low, allows Davis to sometimes go out and shoot threes and then also play down low as well. They can kind of flip-flop. So, and then Rondo's played great. Rajon Rondo, by the way, now, going back to last year, right, when he was on the Bulls, they got out to a 2 0 lead. Then he got hurt, and then they were done. And now they just swept Portland 4 0. He's 6 0. He's played the last six playoff games he started, his teams are 6 0. Pretty good. And he's even scoring a little bit for them. But I think, what, he had 16 assists in game four? He didn't score a bunch. I think he had eight or nine points. Didn't need to. Holiday had, what, 43? And Davis had 40. I mean, I think it was like maybe 45 for Holiday, 43 for Davis. I mean, Davis is showing now that he's a top five player in this league. And another one, another guy who's basically seven feet tall who plays like a guard. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way. He has the, 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 the skill level of a guard. As far as being able to dribble, take people off the dribble, and shoot from outside. But he also will mix it up down low. And he's another one who's battled some injuries. When he's healthy, forget it. Look out. So that series between New Orleans and Golden State should be very interesting, particularly if Curry is not back for any or all of that series. And then you've got the Cavs in Indiana. And LeBron continuing to do LeBron things. I mean, LeBron is carrying this team. This is like the first iteration of LeBron in Cleveland. When he, they had like Zydrunas Ilgauskas, you know, at 40 years old on two broken feet, basically. Was like the second best player. And, and Boogie Gibson. Right, it was a bunch of role players and LeBron's greatness that he that was able to even get them to the finals. I mean, Kevin Love has not played great. Now I understand he he's hurt. He's got the bad ligament on on the left thumb. You know, again, we talked about the fact that they mixed and matched that lineup all year from the complete overhaul of the roster. I mean, Ty Lue is still trying to figure out starting combinations. We're in the playoffs now. You know, J.R. Smith comes off the bench one game, he starts the other. The disturbing trend for Cleveland here is that they've had big leads in these last two games. They blew it uh, in game three, and it cost them the game. They were able to barely hang on by the skin of their teeth on Sunday. 
And now that series is tied at two. But what LeBron is doing in this series again is, is just, it's, it's, it's crazy good. Hold on. We got we to we go and figure this out because I just, I want to make people aware of, let's see. Oh, and we still got to talk about Oklahoma City and Utah. <laughs> I would be remiss if I did not talk about that. Houston, Minnesota. Houston's up 3-1. You know, that, that, that's a classic 1-8 scenario. I said the only chance Minnesota had was if Butler, uh, Towns, and Wiggins all had huge games, 25 points each kind of games every night, and they're not doing that at all. So no shot there. Um. Why can't I find I'm trying to find the box score of the last Celtics game? Just bear with me for a second. If you would be so kind. Alrighty, shall we? No, that was I thought it was was it not on it was on Sunday, correct? Hold on. Yes, it was. Okay. So, just for fun, let's take a look. LeBron, in 46 minutes out of a possible 48, 12 for 22 from the floor, so over 50%. And by the way, he missed all five of his three-point attempts, so he was 12 for 17 from two. Eight for nine from the foul line, which I told you that is the one bugaboo. Sometimes he gets streaky and he's bad from the foul line. Eight for nine from the foul line. 13 rebounds, seven assists, two block shots, only one turnover. In 46 minutes. And he's basically he has the ball in his hands on, on, on every possession. It's pretty good. 32 points. Not bad. Kevin Love, 2 for 10, 5 points. Jose Calderon's corpse got the start in that game. 5 points. Kyle Korver actually made some big shots for them late. 4 for 9 from 3. He had 18. And J.R. Smith, 12 points on 4 for 12, which included a 60-footer at the end of the first quarter. A total prayer that went in. They got 6 points from Larry Nance Jr., 8 from uh, Jeff Green, and Jordan Clarkson actually had a decent game with 12 points off the bench in 22 minutes. And Rodney Hood gave him 6. I mean, (laughs) it's... You know, and then people are going to go crazy. I'm sure sure, uh, all the anti-LeBron... Folks out there, led by Chief Clown Skip Bayless, will, will, will use this opportunity to try to, to to poke holes in his legacy somehow if they don't get past the Pacers in this series. First of all, the Cavs were two games better than the Pacers in the regular season, a whopping two games. It's a 4-5 matchup, people. This is not a 1-8. This would not be some colossal upset. And the other thing that's about this series it's annoying as hell is why is Lance Stevenson allowed to act like with impunity like a thug out there on the court wrestling guys to the ground getting guys in headlocks trying to get in LeBron's ear and LeBron even admitted he took the bait got called for a tech because he's tired of this guy's shenanigans and his nonsense this guy's anointed himself the chief LeBron agitator somehow and where's the commissioner in the NBA can you please suspend this idiot for a game or fine him or do something to deter this ridiculous behavior. 
And look, I get it. The Cavs are trying to take the high road. I mean, that play at the end of the game where he basically tackles Jeff Green. I mean, how that's not a flagrant foul, I have no idea. They call things way less severe than that when guys are driving to the basket that used to be, you wouldn't even consider to be a flagrant foul. Now they get called for flagrant fouls. But Jeff Green's got the ball in his hands on a rebound. This clown Lance Stevenson grabs him by in a headlock and body slams him to the ground, and yet somehow that's not a flagrant foul. See, this, this is where I, the NBA drives you nuts. There's no consistency whatsoever. It's embarrassing. All right, and then speaking of which, as I said... Uh, we've got to go to Oklahoma City and Utah, where Utah took a commanding 3-1 lead last night. Um, I, I mean, look, Ricky Rubio is playing out of his mind. Always liked him when he was with Minnesota, except for the fact that he can't shoot and or score. Um, seems to have improved a little bit. He had a triple-double two nights ago. And then my guy, you know Russ Westbrook's my guy. You know I'm a Russell Westbrook guy. If I had to start a team tomorrow and I wanted to win this season, LeBron would be my first choice. Russell would be my second. But, sorry, you're getting outplayed by Ricky Rubio, my man. And Donovan Mitchell, who went for 33 last night, seven rebounds, four assists, no turnovers. And I think I said on a a, a prior show that the Knicks taking Frank Nilakina rather than Donovan Mitchell was tantamount to when the Knicks took Frederick Weiss, the uh, seven-foot Frenchman center, rather than Ron Artest, I was wrong. This is much, much worse. Much worse. The fact that the Knicks could have had this kid and instead, I mean, look, and I, I, I... I don't want to kill Frank Nilakina, and he might turn into a decent NBA player. I, I get it, and it's not his fault that he got drafted. This is clearly a shot at the idiot owner and Phil Jackson. The fact that the moronic owner allowed Phil Jackson to make that pick and then fired him two days later. Classic Knicks idiocy and incompetence and stupidity. They had the kid. It wasn't like Mitchell wasn't on their radar. He's a local product. He's from like uh, Westchester, I think. His father works for the Mets, or no, he's from Connecticut. Same difference. His father works for the Mets. They had him in for numerous workouts. They liked him. It wasn't like this was some guy that nobody knew about. Played at a good program, Louisville, major competition. Please, Frank Nilakina. So the backcourt of Rubio and Mitchell has been killing it. And, you know, look, again, these teams were tied in the regular season, but everybody looks at Oklahoma City, and they have the stars because they've got Mello, and they've got playoff P, Paul George anointing himself playoff P. I'm sorry, Paul George, what have you ever done in your career? Could you make one clutch shot, please, before you go anointing yourself anything? They lost 113.96 last night. 
Oklahoma City was up six at the end of the first quarter. Utah outscored them by 12 in the second quarter and 11 in the third quarter. Game over. You want to hear the, the numbers for your big stars? Carmelo, 5 for 18, 0 for 6 from 3. In 36 minutes, 11 points with a minus 18. Paul George, playoff P, 9 for 21. So 14 for 39 between the two supposed stars that they added to help Russell Westbrook out. And to be fair, Russell Westbrook did not have a great game himself. 7 for 18, which, by the way, compared to Paul George and Carmelo, is is like dead-eye shooting. 9 for 11 from the line, 14 rebounds, only 3 assists. The team overall for OKC, 10 assists. Pathetic. Now, you go to Utah, Rubio didn't shoot a great, which is not surprising. He's not a great shooter. 4 for 12, 1 for 6 from 3. They gave you 13 points. Eight assists, six rebounds, plus 22. And Mitchell, again, 33 points, no turnovers, four assists, seven boards, plus 22. But they also got a good game from the Stifle Tower. Rudy Gobert, 16 and 10. Joe Ingles, the unheralded one, but a very solid player, 20 points, five for 11 from three. And Derek Favors even chipped in with 13 points. Quinn Snyder, coach of the year, a.k.a. Andrew McCarthy from uh, Less Than Zero. Look it up. Looks just like him. And Donovan Mitchell, rookie of the year. Because, again, as great as Ben Simmons is, he's not a rookie. He was with the Sixers the whole year last year. Just because he didn't play, because they like to redshirt everybody over there. Sorry, you, you were with a professional team for a year. You're not a rookie. This guy came right from college. Now he's in the NBA. Donovan Mitchell, rookie of the year, coach of the year. All right, we'll take a short break. We'll be back with a little bit of Major League Baseball right after this. back here on another edition of Jamal About Sports. Coming back out of the break, I wanted to tell her by ministry. All right, moving right along, Major League Baseball Metropolitan's report. Uh, So, Mets haven't played in a couple of games. Got rained out on Sunday in Atlanta. Uh, Had a tough loss on Saturday night. Poor Jacob DeGrom. This guy now, since he's been in the big leagues, that's the 20th time he's left the game with the lead, I think, after pitching six innings or more and has not gotten a win. Uh, Mets bullpen did it again Saturday night. A.J. Ramos, who I have already been on record as saying I don't like and is not very good, walked the first two guys he saw with a 3-0 lead. Talk all the time about how walks are a recipe for disaster, particularly out of the bullpen. Blevins comes in, Mr. Lefty Specialist. Of course, gives up a two-run double of Freddie Freddie Freeman, Matt Killer. 
Familia comes in, gets an out. Then he walks the next, walks leadoff hitter in the ninth inning, and it all spiraled from there. Mets, terrible loss Saturday night. Terrible. Had two awful losses last week. The Monday night game against the Nationals where they blew a 6-1 lead after seven, and then the Saturday night game against the Braves where they blew a three-run lead after seven. And DeGrom striking out the side to finish the seven, dominating Right, seven shutout innings, ninety-seven pitches, but no, no, no. Let's get him out of there for AJ Ramos. See, th- th- this is the stuff that drives me nuts. That I, I, I can't have it. I can't have it. This rote, idiotic managing. Oh, he's my eighth inning guy. Hey, Mickey Calloway, I have news for you. AJ Ramos stinks. I believe he now has eleven walks in nine innings. And again, the reason that he walks everybody is because he has no stuff. Enough with this guy. He should be used in mop-up situations only. How about Paul Seawald? The guy's pitched great. His last two uh, times out of the bullpen, he's pitched phenomenally well. Three innings at a time, one run, one time, which was basically Jay Bruce uh, gifted the other team a run by butchering a ball in the outfield. He's done that twice already this year so far, by the way, and isn't hitting at all. Um, and he had another game where he came in and, and saved the Mets bullpen and gave him three innings. How about letting him get a shot? This is supposed to be a meritocracy. So that was a terrible loss on Saturday. Awful. But the biggest thing that happened last week was the Mets sending Matt Harvey to the bullpen. And on this uh, point, I could not agree with Callaway and pitching coach Dave Island more. And as a Mets fan, it is about damn time that the managers and the coaches actually ran this team and not the other way around, which is what has been going on for I don't even know how long. Certainly happened under Terry Collins. Oh, you make a base running mistake? No big deal. We won't say anything. Oh, Daniel Murphy, you you got thrown out trying to go to third base and made the first out of third or the last out of third on on an idiotic base running mistake? That's just Murph being Murph. No problem. Oh, Matt Harvey, you want to go out for the ninth inning? Okay, you do whatever you want. Noah Syndergaard, you don't want to get an MRI? That's fine. Okay. What am I going to do? Twist his arm, says Sandy Alderson. I mean, it is about damn time that management actually acts like the adults in the room. And guess what, Matt Harbour? You can be pissed off all you want, which is what he said. You've been bad this year. Thankfully, right now, the Mets are in a position where they don't have to rely on you to start. Because Zach Wheeler has been good in both of his starts. Well, I shouldn't say both. Really good in one, so-so in the other. But his ceiling is much better, higher than Harvey's is right now. And his floor is a lot is not quite as low. You know, Wheeler's bad start was six innings, three runs. If Harvey gave you that, you'd be thrilled. So it's about time. And guess what? There, there doesn't need to be, you know, we don't have to castigate these guys publicly. And name call. 
don't have to call them out and embarrass them. It's very simple. You're not pitching well. Someone's pitching better than you. That's it. You go to the bullpen or you get sent down to the minors. Now, that would have been quite the fall from grace for Harvey. And he would have had the right to refuse going to the minors. And I'm sure he would have. And so it would have been a whole mess. So I think the Mets handled this properly. And also, by the way, there happens to be precedent here and a track record when Callaway is with the Indians. And he took guys like Carrasco and Bauer and put them in the bullpen, and then they became starters again. Now, situations are a little bit different. Those guys still had their stuff. Harvey didn't have any stuff anymore. Okay, He's at 91 miles an hour, 92 tops. And yes, you should be able to get away with that if you can locate if your ball has movement, and if your off-speed pitchers are working, but none of those things are the case. So maybe he'll figure out how to do that in the bullpen. And look, there are only 20 games into the season. There's 142 games left. The likelihood that the Mets are going to need more than five starters this year is, is high. I'd say it's 100%. <laughs> the odds are 100%. So look, this is an opportunity for him to go get his stuff together, and if he proves himself, you know, I would put him in low-pressure situations to start. Big lead or a big deficit. Let him pitch a couple innings. Hopefully pitch well, get some success, maybe build some confidence. Maybe figure some stuff out. And then when they need somebody to be a starter, if he's earned the right to do that, then great. You give him a shot. That's all. I mean, guys, this doesn't have to be hard. This is all common sense. This is easy stuff. But boy, the Mets struggle with these things. Up until finally this year. And I love what Dave Island said the other day. So, you know, Harvey had two terrible innings where he gave him three runs in each of those two innings, right? And to his credit, he did pitch six innings, thereby somewhat sparing the bullpen. But he still gave up six runs in six innings. And he, the Mets were out of the game down 6-0 before you could blink. And Harvey tried to take positives from it, which is his right, and I don't blame him for that. And said, you know, well, look, I mean, I retired 11 out of the last 12. And because the, 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 the reporters started with the questions right after the game about whether or not he should be in the rotation or not. Which, by the way, you don't ask the pitcher that. Because, of course, he's going to say, I'm a starting pitcher. Which is what he said. Now, yes, in a perfect world, would you like him to say, look, I'll do whatever the team wants me to do as long as we win? Yeah, that's the answer. Right? That's the Bull Durham answer. That's what you'd want. But I also don't blame him for saying I'm a starting pitcher. Because that is what he's always been his whole career. He's never been a bullpen guy. And also, again, you have to understand, the Mets created this monster, okay? Because they were such a crap organization and such a talent, uh, so devoid of any talent, that when he came up in 13 and was billed as the savior and the Dark Knight, this is what they created. And they allowed him to do whatever the hell he wanted all the time, too. Remember, he didn't want to reha- He wanted to be in New York when he was rehabbing after the Tommy John surgery. He didn't want to be down in Florida, and all this other stuff. I mean, look, they created this monster. It's their own fault. Okay? Because, again, it's one of the, one of the worst-run organizations in all of sports. And we know that it starts with the owners. Okay. But in this instance, Dave Island said, look, uh, I'm glad that, that, that he grinded. That's a good sign. Uh, but the game starts in the first inning, not the fourth. I mean, do you think anybody under Terry Collins would have dared say something like that? Ooh, we can't, we can't upset the precious pitcher. It's like Kramer and the monkey on Seinfeld. Barry, ooh, can't upset the precious monkey. Can't upset precious, the delicate sensibilities of, of the Mets' supposed superstars. Even though I believe Harvey's career record now is 30 and 30. 
some superstar. You know, the Mets, like the Lions, and hopefully the Lions are changing this, they are one of these organizations. Boy, do they like to anoint guys, huh? Let's crown them, as, De- as Denny Green, the late, day, the, the late great Denny Green once said about the Bears. Let's just crown these guys. You have two good starts and you're a big prospect. That's it. Oh, the next savior, the next Seaver, the next Gooden, next Strawberry. And look, I understand that's not unique to the Mets in the sense that the media does this a lot all the time. But again, I'll use the Yankees as a perfect example. Last year, I mean, God forbid I know that the terrible Joe Girardi, you know, called out uh, Sanchez last year and said, look, he's got to be better. Blocking balls in the dirt. We can't have the pass balls. And again, he didn't embarrass him. He didn't say anything. First of all, everything he said was true. And he didn't say he's a lazy bum and I want him off my team. He said, no, he's working. He's just got to get better at it. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, to not say that is what's wrong. Saying that's 100% the responsible thing to do if you're the manager of a baseball team. I don't see how this is crazy thinking. So look, I loved the fact that Harvey got sent to the bullpen. And again, I, I, I'm not in the business of let's, let's embarrass him. A lot of Mets fans hate Harvey now. I, I have no ill will towards the guy. But this was what the best move for the team was. And again, it sends a message, hopefully, that scholarship time is over. The days of being anointed a superstar because you had one and a half good years are over. Every year is new. I mean, build up some track record of success, please. And again, this guy, you know, through no fault of his own, Tommy John surgery and thoracic outlet surgery. And I believe no pitchers had to come back from both. Guys have come back from either or, but not both. So we're in kind of uncharted waters here, too, when it comes to the injury. You know, so just because he's out there and he says he feels good. I mean, again, you can see his stuff is clearly diminished. It does not have the velocity, the movement, or the pop that it once did. And he may never get that back. And so he may have to reinvent himself as a different kind of pitcher. And that's hard to do at the major league level as a starter. That's all. Again, it doesn't need to be, we don't have to make a federal case out of this. Uh, yes, I understand it's New York. And they like to sensationalize everything. I understand. But it's nice to finally see some cooler heads prevail and the, some adults actually in the room now with the Mets. And overall, I mean, I like Callaway a lot. Again, I said it. I love his demeanor. He seems he's a straight shooter. You know, I don't love that he's giving guys like Reyes starts here and there, but you know what? He, that's why he's the manager I'm not because he needs, he needs to get Reyes going. You need to keep guys like that fresh. And he actually was very, he said a very smart thing. This is a new role for Reyes coming off the bench this much. And then Reyes was 0 for his first 20. Callaway pinch hit him in a big spot in a game against the Nationals with a runner on third and less than two outs. And Reyes struck out and looked bad in the process. And he gave him a start the other day against the Braves. He went three for four. 
Weather's a little warmer. I think Jose likes the warm weather a little bit better than, than the 40-degree weather that's been playing in for most of the, the start to this young season. So, you know, but he's getting Wilmer in there like he said he would, which I love. Listen, so far, for the most part, He's hitting all the right notes. 14 and 6. If you would have told me again at the start of the year the Mets were going to be 14 and 6, I'd say I would sign up for that right now. And by the way, I know it's early. I'm just saying the Nats, I believe, are now 9 and 11, 9 and 12. You know, look, it's a long season, right? The Mets are definitely due to have a stretch where they may, be, they may go 3 and 7. Now, you would think with Syndergaard and DeGrom, they won't be prone to too many long losing streaks because both those guys are stoppers. But again, DeGrom's pitched great his last two starts. The Mets have lost both of them because the bullpen has blown the game. So, you know, and again, in this era now where the bullpens are used so much, I mean, the Mets have already made like four different moves, sending guys up and bringing guys, sending guys down and bringing guys up because they need a fresh bullpen arm, you know. And I understand part of it is a factor that it's early in the season, the weather's been bad, and so you're not trying to push these guys too much. But, I mean, come on, Mickey. DeGrom's in the game. He dominated the seventh inning. Trust your eyes. You're better than that. 97 pitches. Let him pitch the eighth. I guess guess he felt like he got burned because he let him start the eighth on Monday against the Nats. But, you know, that was that game. Every game is different. And, again, if you're going to pull him after seven innings, it cannot be for A.J. Ramos. can't. And if you're going to tell me AJ Ramos, if you can't trust AJ Ramos with three three run lead, he shouldn't be on your team. Fine, then get rid of him because I don't want him. I never wanted him here to be first place anyway. <laughs> All right, one more short break, and we'll be back with a little NFL and some draft stuff right after this. And we are back here on another edition of Jamal about sports. Coming back from the final break, Johnny Come Home by Fine Young Cannibals, led by the unmistakable voice of Mr. Rolling Gift. All right, so draft Thursday. Um, here are my hopes for the Lions draft to all my Lions peeps out there. My ideal scenario for the Lions is a trade down. Now, I thought the perfect trading partner would have been the Patriots at 31, the Lions sitting there at 20, because the Patriots need an offensive tackle in the worst way. Uh, they've lost two in, uh, in the offseason. They're starting left tackle, Nate Solder went to the Giants, and Cameron Fleming, who's like a swing tackle for them, starts sometimes, signed with the Cowboys. So they need a tackle in the worst way. Now, this is not a great, not considered to be a great draft for offensive tackles as far as like there's no Jonathan Ogden's out there there's no you know uh, um, of course I'm I'm thinking Anthony Munoz that name's probably a little old for some of the folks out there Uh, why can't I think of the kid for the Cowboys their left tackle Anyway, um, you know, there's no stud, stud left tackles out there. The best offensive lineman in this draft is Quentin Nelson, a guard from from Notre Dame. But where the Lions are picking a 20, I think, you know, you could get maybe a McGlinchey from Notre Dame, Colton Miller from UCLA. I mean, there are guys out there, the kid from Oregon, 
maybe the Rankins kid from Mississippi State. Maybe uh, Orlando Brown from Oklahoma, although I know he had a terrible combine. Oh, he wasn't that agile. Uh, he's 6'8", 340 pounds, people. Sorry he didn't run a good 40. Um, so, you know, and I think the Patriots care less about that kind of crap than they, they, they do actual game tape. So they may want one of those guys and might, and might not think that they'll, they'll be there at 31. So that would have been a great – and obviously, you know, the synergies between the fact that Quinn used to work for the Patriots and whatever. Now, listen, maybe – and I don't think Belichick's mad at Patricia for taking the Lions job either, by the way. So that would have been a perfect trading partner for the Lions to trade down to 31, pick up an extra third-round pick. And then that way, in my mind, the Lions could have addressed their top four needs with their first four picks, which are in no particular order, a left guard, an edge rusher slash outside linebacker or defensive end, whatever you want to call it, because the Lions are now going to be less, much less of a traditional 4-3 team. They're going to run a lot of multiple front looks under Patricia. So sometimes they'll be in a 3-4, sometimes they'll be in a 4-3. A defensive tackle, an interior D lineman, and a running back. And you could do that with a one- a two and two threes. So if you're the Lions and you traded with the Patriots and you're sitting there at 31, you're going to be able to get, I'd say, one of, choose from one of the the above for an offensive lineman. James Daniels from Iowa, Billy Price from Ohio State, uh, David Hernandez from UTEP, or uh, Isaiah Wynn from Georgia. You're... 99% one of those four guys is going to be there. So you can take your lineman there. See, my concern is that if the line stand pat at 20, and let's just say for argument's sake, Harold Landry drops into their lap at 20, the edge rusher from BC, I'd be thrilled. And they take him, that's great. I don't think any of the guys, the, the top guards, are going to be there in round two. I think they'll all be gone by then. I could be wrong. You know, maybe Austin Corbett from UNLV. He could be, uh, not UNLV, from Nevada. He could be there. Maybe Frank Ragnow from Arkansas. But he's more of a center. I think for the Lions, Graham Glasgow plays best at center than left guard. But, you know, they know that stuff way better than I do. So if they draft a center and they're going to move Glasgow back to left guard, I'm going to trust them that they know what the hell they're doing. You know, they have a new old line coach, Jeff Davidson. He's been an old line coach for a long time. He played in the league for a long time. Uh, I, I, I'm going to go ahead and say Jeff Davis probably knows better than I do <laughs> whether or not Graham Glasgow is better suited for left guard or center. However, not always, by the way. Not always these coaches do. They don't always know these things. But I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt here. So that would have been my, my ideal scenario for the Lions. I don't think that's going to happen now because the Patriots made that trade. They traded Brandon Cooks. For a first-round pick. Now they moved up to 23. Unless, you know, between 20 and 23, there's three guys there that they love, and they know if they move up to 20, they're sure to get almost two of them. And then maybe the Lions still trade down to that 31st pick, or maybe the Patriots just want to pop up three spots. Now the Lions are going to get much there. I think most you'd probably get a fourth-round pick, which I'd still be happy with for them. But I really think in order, again, to address their core four needs – they need two threes, a one, a two, and two threes, and then they could do it and give them a lot of flexibility. The guy I don't want to see the Lions take is Taven Bryan, and I don't care if it's they trade down and then still take him. If they take him at 20, I'm going to be infuriated. 
No, sir. My top choices for the Lions at 20 are Landry from BC, the edge rusher. Davenport, the edge rusher from University of Texas, San Antonio. I'll take Wynn or Hernandez, either of the two guards. One is more of a mauler man type. One's a little bit more of a tactician. Whichever, you know, the Lions haven't really said what kind of scheme they're going to run up front from a blocking scheme standpoint. Whichever one they feel is the better fit, fine. That's great. One size doesn't necessarily always fit all when it comes to O-linemen. Although I love Hernandez. I love Wynn too, actually. I'd be happy with either one of them. So those four. I'll take Deron Payne from Alabama. Those would be my top five choices. If, by some, if for some reason all five of those guys are gone, and the lines are still sitting there at 20, if Darius Geis is available, or they love Sony Michelle, or even Nick Chubb, they want to take one of those guys there? I have no problem with it. Because I understand it's very in vogue now to say running backs, you can get great ones in the third round, and you can. My guy, Kareem Hunt, Exhibit A. But the Lions running game has been so bad for so long. And they have not had a true bell cow guy for so long. And I understand it's not always just on the backs. Part of a scheme, offensive line, they had injuries last year. Right? I mean, I don't think Amir Abdullah is this bad, but it's such a need. And again, Stafford played great last year. He's played great every year for the most part with zero running game. Imagine if the Lions had even a, a semblance of one. And I understand they signed Garrett Blount in the offseason. He's 32 years old. It's a one-year deal. He should still, LeGarrette Blount ideally should be a short yards goal line specialist. That's what he should be. 10, ten carries a game guy. Now, could he probably shoulder a bigger load if needed? Yeah. And then the other thing is, if you have a really good running back and you can actually possess the ball for a little bit, guess what? That obviously it helps out your defense too. So I have no problems. Again, I would much rather Darius Geis at 20 than Taven Bryan. Taven Bryan, to me, would be like when the Lions drafted Eric Ebron. Not quite that bad because, again, I'm going to go ahead and give Patricia the benefit of the doubt so far and, 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 and defer to his you know, track record. And at least it is a position of need. And the guy's got great physical ability. Now, he just doesn't know what the hell he's doing yet. But in two or three years, he might be one of the better D-linemen in the league. So I could talk myself into it. But again, rule of thumb, generally speaking, when you have to talk yourself into your team's first-round pick, or any pick for that matter, more often than not, it's going to end up being a bad pick. So I really don't want Taven Bryan being selected by line. Now, look, if he drops to the second round, the line's taking the second round. It's a whole other story. But I don't want him, even if they trade down late into the first, I don't want him there. And I don't want him certainly at 20. Again, I'm going on record now. Johnny Man, uh, Johnny, <laughs> Baker Mayfield needs to be the pick by the Jets at three. Assuming he's there, which I think he will be. The Jets, I think, should take Saquon at two. Uh, the Jets, the Giants. 
We'll see what the Browns do at one. The Browns were smart. They take whatever quarterback they like the best at one. And then at four, listen, they still need plenty of players. They want Quentin Nelson, a left guard, take him. You want Bradley Chubb, take him. You know, I mean, look, that Cleveland's defense, we talked about, I talked about it last year because the Lions played them. Their defense is pretty good. Front seven, anyway. Secondary is not great, but front seven is pretty good. You know, Miles Garrett, number one pick last year. Guy nobody talks about is a good player as Emmanuel Ogba on the other side. You throw Bradley Chubb in the mix, that's a pretty f- uh, formidable rotation of three DNs. Plus, you throw in the Nassib kid from Penn State's not bad either. You have four above average DNs. That's a lot of depth. You could probably mix and match, move some of those guys inside on passing downs, gives you a lot of flexibility. So Bradley Chubb would be a great pick for the Browns at four. They want to go Derwin James, that'd be a good pick for them. The safety slash corner out of Florida State. So anyway, it'll be very interesting to see. We'll see if, if the, there are more trades. I suspect there will be for teams looking to come up into the draft and get quarterback. Where's Lamar Jackson going to go? The Saints, to me, would be the perfect landing spot for him. Now there's some rumblings the Patriots might take a shot at him at 23. If he's there, we'll see. So it'll be this is one of the more intriguing drafts in recent memory. All right, that's going to do it for tonight's show. As always, check us out on iTunes, on SoundCloud, uh, Twitter, at JamalAboutSport. Thanks for listening. Until next week, we'll be back next week. AG will uh, join me for a, uh, a post-draft analysis show, which I think we, this will be the fifth or sixth year in a row we've done one of those. Uh, so check us out next week for that. And until then, enjoy the baseball, enjoy the NBA playoffs, enjoy the NFL draft, and peace out.